we're very happy today to introduce Dr. Remy Crusoe coming to us from Colombia. Um, his talk today is Epitope-Based Tolerance-Inducing Immunotherapy for Type 1 Diabetes, The Road to Precision Medicine. As you know, we are big fans of precision medicine here at the Sugar Science, as well as personalized medicine. Um, we do believe uh, from all that we've heard from scientists that there are very many endotypes and that the answers are gonna be solved by, you know, adhering to precision medicine strategies and um, personalized medicine strategies. So Dr. Crusoe is a principal investigator at the Columbia Central for Translational Immunology, also affiliated with the Naomi Berry's Diabetes Center. And he received his PhD in immunology for, uh, from University College London and his postdoc from Stanford. His main expertise is on the analysis and targeting of auto-reactive T cells in type one diabetes, so he's using various preclinical models, including mice with human immune system and patient-derived lymphoid tissues. And he's investigating the conditions of antigen presentations that favor immune tolerance in, uh, to self in context of autoimmunity inflammation. This work contributed to the development of several antigen-specific and cell-based approaches and patents for precision therapies of autoimmune diabetes. So welcome. Uh, Remy, um, thank you very much for joining us. I really look forward to hearing um, about your work. Thank you, Monica. Thank you for having me today uh, on your platform. So um, I don't seem to be able to advance. Okay. So um, today we're going to talk about uh, therapies uh, for um, aim to specifically target pathogenic T cells in type 1 diabetes. So most of you are familiar with this, this uh, disease. So the pathogenic T cells are actually CD8 T cells and TH1 cells. And uh, they are the results of possibly a like accumulation from defective uh, central, uh, central tolerance or a defective regulation by T-Rex. So you see during this talk that uh, T-Rex is an important population that needs to be uh, leveraged in order to control these cells. And, and these pathogenic T cells respond to a number of uh, proteins that are produced by beta cells specifically, the, shown, uh, the main one are shown here, as well as a number of neoepitopes that are, have been discovered in the recent years. So the, the goal of antigen-specific immunotherapy is to introduce and, and, uh, and ensure presentation of these antigens under appropriate conditions in order to desensitize those autoreactive T cells leading to tolerance. So there are different ways to achieve tolerance, different mechanisms that are involved. Obviously, you can just simply eliminate the pathogenic T cells by deletion. You can make them silent, process core energy, or you can have them suppressed by regulatory T cells. So what ideally we try to achieve in this context is the dominant type of tolerance, whereas we can uh, expand or boost the existing Tregs or generate new Tregs by conversion from pathogenic T cells into regulatory T cells. And the advantage of dominant tolerance is that you may require fewer antigens to be able to uh, suppress the overall autoreactive T cell response. So uh, in terms of the precision medicine, in, uh, we now know that uh, T1D patients is a relatively heterogeneous group of patients. Uh, they can be uh, subgrouped into 
what's called endotope that Monica mentioned earlier. And there are some of them more uh, better characterized than others. I'll just show here two major endotypes. One is characterized by auto insulin autoantibodies with uh, predominantly characterized by DR4-indicuate HLA haplotype, and then those that have more of a uh, dominant GAD anti antibodies with DR3-DQ2 haplotype. And so there is an example that uh, these groups of patients respond differently to antigen-specific immunotherapy. So for example, patients with a high level of autoinsulin antibody tend to respond better to insulin uh, oral insulin therapy. Uh, in contrast, the patients that have these uh, DR3-DQ2 alleles shown here are also better or even ex exclusive responders to a GAD-mediated immunotherapy, whereas those who do not have these haplotypes did not respond. And particularly those who had this haplotype here and did not have these other haplotypes here for DQ8 were best responders for this kind of therapy. So the model that we use in preclinical studies is the NOD mouse model. As we know that this uh, is limited in terms of translation of the, the efficacy that's been found in NOD mice. It, it does not always translate well to patients if you look at patient as a whole. Uh, however, you know, we, I think that the, the, the non-mouse uh, is, is a, actually a good model for one subgroup of these patients that shown here. And one, uh, actually two main reasons is that the uh, MHC class two of NOD mice, which is quite unique to this strain, is very comparable to the DQ8 of T1D patients. And also these NOD mice develop only one type of insulin uh, uh, autoantibody, which are the insulin autoantibodies. So I'll, I'll try to make the point that uh, the, these uh, preclinical models are uh, still uh, very useful and, and relevant, but it could be, uh, especially when it comes to precision medicine, to model a subtype of, of patients. So I, like I said, there are already known factors that uh, influence responsiveness to uh, antigen-specific immunotherapy, so HLA haplotype and autoantibody profile. And hopefully, we've, as we go uh, further into refining these endotypes, there are a number of signatures that can be identified in patients and uh, allowing T1D patients to be stratified into subgroups. And then hopefully, we'll be able to also correlate these subgroups with responsiveness to immunotherapy. Uh, other factors that can be involved in stratifying patients are, of course, the genetic, and we already know that some uh, other gene SNPs are involved with um, certain endotypes more than others. And then also, it's possible that the profile of the circulating T cell pool can be used later to determine the preferential. Uh, types of antigens are preferentially targeted by these T cells, uh, particularly as we go further into uh, high throughput uh, detection of autoactive T cells with uh, MHC multimers using either a combinatorial fluorescent-based tetrameral multimers and, and further into using DNA, DNA barcoded multimers. So that's, that's more for the, the uh, future. So these... <clears throat> 
antigenic proteins that are produced by beta cells obviously are uh, contain multiple epitopes or peptides and the advantages of using these peptides for therapy. So of course, we know that some of these peptides, we know the ability to bind certain HLA haplotype, which is required for proper presentation to T cells. If you look at the immune epitope database, which uh, inventory all of the uh, epitopes, uh, and then search for human and uh, type 1 diabetes related epitopes, you come up with no less than about 11,000 uh, records, which is quite extensive for uh, for this type of disease, which is uh, in, which we know involves a lot of different antigens and epitopes. And this is uh, getting more and more complex with the, the type of epitopes. So of course, you have your native peptide that comes from those proteins I mentioned earlier, but it could be a lot more complex. Some of these peptides may be post-translationally modified, uh, and then they are also now hybrid peptides that are the result of fusion of peptides from different antigens. Uh, there are peptides that are uh, defective ribosomal products, uh, as well peptides formed by differential RNA splicing. And, and finally, there are artificial peptides or mutated peptides, also called mimetopes, that can be used. And, and some of them are just the result of uh, uh, artificial peptides from uh, libraries that were tested on antigen-specific T cells. And some of them are very similar to also pre-existing natural peptides. And then there are other peptides that can be used to mimic post-translational modification or also alter the binding of these uh, peptides to MHC, for example, by shifting the or changing the register of the way these peptides are um, can I ask you a quick question here with the mimetopes? Have has anyone noticed any um, microbial peptide ligands? You mean for cross reactivity? Yeah. There, there are some uh, microbial peptides that yeah that have very similar to to uh, uh, beta cell antigens. Uh, one of them, IGRP, uh, was discovered in in NOD mice, and I think a GAD antigen uh, also. Yeah, I think you you also uh, published on that when you can. We did understand your question. My little team, yes. Um, so um, you know now we, we've come a long way to get more and more specific, and it's, it's very important in terms of safety to target specific uh, cell types of pathways with biologics. But I think in terms of the ultimate safety is the ability to only target the pathogenic T cells with relevant antigens to desensitize only these pathogenic T cells. And uh, I made the point that using peptides, you'll be able to do multiple things. Uh, obviously, by, uh, selecting peptides that are known to bind specifically to HLA haplotype, which is important. You might use fewer peptides, but for which you know they're well uh, that good ability to bind. They can be based on dominant antigens for specific patients. And you can include neoepitopes, uh, which are typically not found in recombinant proteins, uh, thinking particularly about uh, these fusion uh, hybrid peptides. So uh, in terms of treating patients or, or animals, you, know, you can of course just inject the, the free peptides uh, that's been done uh, by people like Mark Pickman or David Rafe, 
but you can also pulse these peptides in heterogenic uh, antigen-presenting cells or in artificial antigen-presenting cells. They can also be encapsulated into nanoparticles. And, and finally, uh, they can be uh, delivered in a multivalent fashion. And then also, they can be also made to be expressed by your own cells, either from DNA or RNA. And this is one of the topic today, uh, endogenous expression of, of peptides. And uh, an advantage of these, uh, these platforms is the ability to quickly design and produce these, these um, molecules uh, and the ability to produce a large number of epitopes from a single molecule. And another advantage is that once these, since they are encoded by your own cells, they can potentially undergo this post-translational modification that you may not necessarily predict uh, when using just a synthesized peptide. So this platform here that we developed consists of uh, multiple clusters of peptides that can be expressed within the cells and then differentially uh, targeted either towards MHC class one or MHC class two. And so that allows optimal presentation of those peptides and allows also targeting of both CD4 and CD8 T cells that are involved with the disease. Uh, if, if for some reason the, the type of cells that get uh, targeted to produce those is very limited, we have the ability to have these uh, epitopes or polypeptides secreted by the cells so that they can be shared with more antigen presenting cells. And uh, these platforms have been used in our lab in either to engineer or modify exogenous APCs for either cell therapy or transplantation, and also to target endogenous APCs either via DNA vaccines or RNA vaccines. So today I'm only going to show the, some of the data for our latest publication uh, featuring DNA vaccine. So this is a relatively simple DNA vaccine here with a couple of uh, major epitopes that's been customized for NOD mouse. Again, uh, where we really targeting uh, specific uh, subsets of like modeling a subset of patients. And these are the two constructs that I mentioned earlier, are intracellular or secreted. And we have compared this with a mouse pro-insulin DNA vaccines, which have been the basis of uh, current trial by Tolerian and also this also mass insulin used in trials by Novo Nordisk. So, but using the, the full uh, mass insulin protein. And, and one of the first thing we realized pretty early since DNA vaccines only target a very few cells is a very low if transfection efficiency in vivo. Uh, it's really the uh, secreted version in this case that uh, uh, has an utility in preventing the development of, of type 1 diabetes, but whereas the other one is not sufficient. So uh, as you can see here, we, we have done a continuous treatment for uh, uh, weekly injections of DNA vaccines, either intramuscular, intradermal, and uh, three things you can see from these data the first one is that between proinsulin and endotope vaccine, there's no, uh, and they are very comparable in terms of efficiency. And intradermal route 
is more effective than intramuscular, which is the one that's been uh, used before for proinsulin. And then finally, you can see that you, you need to treat quite a long time in order to achieve a, a sustained and, and stable protection, such that after you stop the treatment, the mice that are remain disease-free uh, are kind of a long protected long-term uh, after, after the treatment is stopped. Uh, in contrast, if the treatment is too short, for example, here only 10 weeks, you can see that even though you can delay the onset of disease, even sometimes significantly, uh, once you stop the treatment, the mice uh, go on to develop diabetes and the overall protection is usually not significant. So it takes time to build this, this tolerance uh, in when you use this kind of therapy. And so the NOD mouse, there are different stages of disease that correspond to human disease as shown here. And what I've shown earlier is uh, basically stage one treatment where all the mice were treated at the time they were still normal glycemic. Um, we also try to treat the mice at a later stage when they are uh, in the process of getting, uh, becoming hyperglycemic uh, during this dysglycemic stage. And at that, in this case, we treated mice twice a week uh, for only six weeks. And uh, what we can see is that both treatment for insulin or endotope were protective, even though endotope early on did not have a very good, uh, good protection. But once we stopped the treatment, the remaining mice were protected long-term. So that's uh, towards very important to, to not have to notice. So one thing that's very kind of unique with this, this uh, endotope vaccine is that some of the epitopes are actually targeted to MHC class two, unlike the, the pro-insulin vaccine. And so we're interested in an in effect on CD4 T cells, particularly whether T-Rex are involved. And we focused particularly on this time point here where we start to see a very nice uh, divergence in the response to this treatment versus the saline control. And as we can see here, at this time point, there's a significant reduction in the level of insulitis in the islets. And then also comparing proinsulin with endotope, a significant increase in the percentage of islets that were devoid of insulitis. And uh, one of those epitopes expressed here was the P79 epitope. And uh, it's... Um, for which we had MHC tetramer. And you can see here that this population is indeed clearly expanded. And you don't see this expansion of proinsulin, which does not contain this epitope. And this expansion was seen in inguinal leaf node and spleen. And that leads to also increase in uh, expression of certain markers of related to tolerance. Uh, just examples here, they were either upregulated in both the inguinal and inguinal lymph node and spleen, so training lymph node and spleen, or only in inguinal lymph nodes, but we never see any effect on the pancreatic lymph node. Importantly, when we looked earlier, so that's all published earlier, that after only three doses of, of a DNA vaccine injection, we start to see some uh, Treg appearing, but it's not that much. But after this longer treatment, and we can see this, this, these changes, 
characterized by the response of these P79 reactive T cells. In the controls, they are either Tbet positive or FOXP3 positive or both. Tbet being the regulator expressing the of TH1 cells and regulating interferon gamma. And with endotope, you can see that all these cells have shifted towards making mostly FOXP3 and no more Tbet. And other cytokines involved include L2 upregulation, L10, which is important, TNF alpha, but we see very little interferon gamma production. And again, this is seen in uh, everywhere but the PLA. So I want to say a few words quickly about another approach, which is uh, the use of multivalent peptides. Uh, and here we are basically comparing using free peptides versus multivalent delivery. And that's the soluble antigen array platform that was uh, developed by collaborator Corey Birkland. So these are basically peptides conjugated to hyaluronic acid polymer typically about 10 peptides per molecule. And they were expected to improve peptide solubility and also lymph node draining due to the increased uh, molecular weight. But on top of that, we found multiple advantages of this. Uh, but before I go on, there's also two types of uh, molecules used, uh, uh, two types of chemistry used to bind these peptides onto these macromolecules one that uh, allows hydrolysis, so release of the peptides, another one that's more stable linker. So these are the peptides uh, They require some modification in order to achieve this binding. And I'll talk a little bit about these two. So the peptide used for these studies were again, the P79 mimetope and the 2.5 hybrid insulin peptides. One characteristic of these two peptides is that they are both recognized by this PDC 2.5 transgenic mice. So in the adoptive transfer model, we compare free peptide and saga using the same amount of peptide. And we looked at the responses in the draining lymph node, in distal lymph nodes and in spleen. And as you can see in uh, the, the, the sagas, both sagas were much more potent than the free peptide at the higher dose, and at a lower dose, the C saga was more potent than H saga. And uh, we can see the response is stronger in a draining lymph node where you expect to have a higher local dose of, of the product. And same thing was seen with a number of markers that are upregulated and associated with uh, tolerance, like CD73. But we see very nice upregulation, but again, nothing seen with the peptides. Uh, more uh, clearly, you can see that uh, with the sagas, we get uh, an increased level of IL-10 production by these T cells without increase of interferon gamma, which is very important. Uh, um, but conversely, when you look at FOXP3 positive cells, in fact, it's uh, in the more distal sites and spleen that you see upregulation of FOXP3. And, and also at the, the lower dose, suggesting that uh, FOXP3 induction requires lower dose of peptides and of cycles. Uh, you see the same kind of models where we do a single injection of either peptide or cycles and, and injecting those transgenic T cells later on at multiple times to see when the antigen, how long is the antigen still presented. We found that cycles are very different than peptide in which at least for three days, the presentation remains about the same, whereas it starts to drop 
using the peptide mix. And so suggesting that uh, SAGAs allow more prolonged in vivo presentation of those peptides. And then finally, we looked at these uh, peptides, uh, response to these peptides by endogenous T cells. So we had tetramers through the recognized both T cells. And as I said earlier, the BDC2.5 recognized both. So they will be basically typically staying with, uh, with both tetramers. But in this case, we found that the majority of T cells responding responded to one or the other. So there was no uh, cross reactivity. And uh, in fact, we see that for in terms of most of the response, it was mostly by P79 reactive T cells, where we see some global expansion as well as some upregulation of uh, markers like these energetic markers by these T cells, but not by the 2.5 reactive T cells. But for some other markers like KLRG1, we saw a response by both the P79 response by P79 reactive T cells or by 2.5. Uh, hip reactive T cells that was consistent with the presence with, of the relevant peptide within either the, using the single saga or the mix. And uh, looking at the L10 versus interferon gamma, again, that uh, response, an increased L10 was seen with the P79 reactive T cells, but not with the 2.5 hip reactive T cells. And that's the ratio here you can see seen with this cell, but not with these ones. Uh, interestingly, though, FOXP3 was uh, not induced, but we saw that in pre-existing FOXP3, there was an upregulation of CD44 in FOXP3 positive cells, showing that these uh, Tregs were stimulated with both in both P79 and 2.5 reactive tetramer positive cells. And in all these data, you can see that there was no effect of the peptide mix, even though it was the same dose. And so, um, as you can see that when we use the, the saga mix containing the two peptides, both H-saga and C-saga, there was a very impressive protection of, uh, against uh, disease, even though the effect of 2.5 hip was limited to certain effect. But interestingly, when we uh, use only one of the two sagas, they were, they were not protective. So suggesting that this, the combination of the two was required to achieve this level of protection, whereas the peptide mix had no protection. And you can see with uh, shown by the arrow a time when we actually reduce the dosing from 2.5 to 0.5 nanomole. There's a maintenance dose that still protects, but uh, keeping mice at this higher level led in some cases to uh, the development of anaphylaxis. And this is the incidence of anaphylaxis in these mice. And you can see that these are, uh, there are different incidences. And in both cases, looking at this peptide and its, well, its corresponding saga, there was a re reduced incidence of anaphylaxis when the peptide is on sagas. And uh, in general, C sagas was also more, protect more safe than H saga. And so this uh, anaphylaxis was actually found to be IgG1 mediated and, and targeting P79 and not 2.5 hip. So there is some precedent in NOD mouse model that these mice can develop anaphylaxis in response to peptide treatment or injection of number of proteins. And in some of these papers, they found that this was found in NOD mice, but not in Black 6 and Bob C mice. So we took uh, our most, uh, uh, most anaphylactogenic 
treatments, these two peptides and sagas, and treated uh, black six mice as well. And we found that black six mice do not develop anaphylaxis. So it's, it's quite interesting, but uh, no evidence yet in, in humans, such res response to, to peptide therapy. But if that were to happen, uh, especially in the context of an autoimmune background, it would be very good to know that uh, SAGAs would definitely reduce this incidence uh, as, as compared to uh, free peptides. And then finally, I just want to show so this very interesting difference between these two uh, peptides. The only difference between these peptides is the way they are modified in order, for, to, in order to, to graft them onto a SAGA uh, with different chemistries. And, and, and this, only these two modifications led to a very different uh, incidence of anaphylaxis. So we're looking into that. But another thing we, we also noticed is that the amino oxid modification has the same ability as the non-modified peptide to stimulate BDC 2.5. Whereas this modification here, for some reason, uh, induced a much stronger uh, proliferation and, and response in the T cells, as you can see here. Uh, two log increase with P79. And we also showed that it was also the case with the 2.5 hip peptide. And that in this case, we have an increase of about one log in the response. So just to, to summarize, the multivalent delivery of peptide is definitely more effective and also potentially safer for authorization than the same peptide in the free form. There are different mechanisms involved, including energy, TR1, FOXP3 Treg induction, and possibly deletion in the long term. I didn't have a chance to, to show this data. Um, and that depends on the type of saga you choose, the dose, and the duration of treatment. And, and therefore, and also the uh, efficacy and safety seem to be also influenced by the type of peptide modification that you use. So, uh, you know, this is a long pipeline to get these, these type of uh, approach going into uh, delivered into patients. And of course, there, a lot of credit goes to the people in upstream involved in identifying and validating these, these epitopes, uh, some of the names involved here, and those also uh, trying to characterize endotypes. And then uh, from there, we can go into uh, designing constructs, the right backbone. Modulation can be important to make sure that immunogenicity is reduced or, and or heterogeneity increased and then finding the right way of delivery, uh, potentially involving nanoparticles in some cases. So if you were to uh, pick one, I would say that uh, SAGAs are ideal for delivery for only a few peptides. And if you only targeting CD4 T cells, although it can be also used to deliver proteins. And then on the top uh, uh, platforms, are ideal for a larger set of epitopes, and especially when you need to target both CD4 CD8 T cells, but of course you need to ensure that in all cases you achieve the right context of antigen presentation. And uh, I will stop here, uh, particularly acknowledging two members of my lab who have enormously contributed to these studies, Jorge Postigo and Rebuma Fidesa, who were supported by the ADA and my collaborators on these different platforms. Thank you. That's really fantastic. Uh, you know, some really, really interesting results. I wonder if anyone in the audience would like to ask a couple of questions. Just feel free to 
unmute yourself uh, or just put something in the chat, whatever way you'd like to ask a question. Hi, Remy. Uh, I nice think see you again. Very nice talk. My question is, um, you, you didn't touch a lot on the mRNA uh, nanoparticles. What what your thoughts on that for the um, delivery? Um, so we we have a project on, on this right now, but mm. obviously there's a lot of it's, it's a lot more considerations, particularly by the fact that you cannot just inject RNA on its own like we do with DNA. So it has to be formulated, and there's so many different options into the, in terms of nanoparticles, but. The, the formulation itself now could have some immunogenic effect. So even if you make the RNA, you modify the RNA optimally to prevent any recognition, any innate recognition of this RNA, you, you, you can still have effect by the formulation the type of lipids or ionized lipids. And so there's, there's a lot to consider. And um, there's a recent publication by in by the Genentech group I might have seen on the effect of uh, comp comparing lipoplexes and, uh, and ionized lipid nanoparticles showing that indeed they, they, they can have uh, some of them can have uh, in the, can induce inflammatory cytokines like uh, what uh, particularly on human cells so um, we have a project that try to circumvent that issue by, by targeting non-professional antigen-presenting cells that cannot become immunogenic. But uh, hopefully that will be the topic of uh, some future talk. Yeah, um, we are also very interested in uh, lipid uh, nanoparticle for mRNA uh, delivery. So uh, probably uh, like a, um, there's like a other like a chemical modification can um, can work on that to reduce the immunogenicity. I'm very uh, interested in, uh, I mean, this project, maybe we, we can talk about uh, any like uh, collaborations in the future. Of course. Thank you. Here's a question from the chat from Jonathan Heller. Please comment on the combination of protein epitope therapy with immune tolerating agents such as PD-1. If using DNA delivery, could you express both immunogenic epitopes and tolerizing molecules at the same time? Uh, the answer is yes, although they might, not have, they might not be on the same DNA backbone. So it's, I think it would be easier when combining different plasmids or different vectors to have them in nanoparticles because there would be a better way to ensure co-delivery to cells. Uh, what we've done so far is just naked plasmid uh, delivery. And of course, uh, it's possible to get very large plasmid. Actually, the Matthias uh, group at Novo Nordisk have used this very big plasmid expressing both proinsulin and three cytokines on the same uh, DNA backbone. So it is, it is possible, challenging in some ways, but uh, I, I would personally favor uh, using different backbone because it allows more easy uh, customization and it gives us some more flexibility in terms of mixing, uh, picking and mixing things to use, especially if it turns out that some patients need modulation and some don't. So I think in the future, we'll be able to 
to do that? Great question. I guess uh, he said, thanks. I did wonder, you know, when just to sort of backtrack a little bit and uh, we're sort of, you know, at the end of our time, but in the mice that really progressed the best, have you been able to characterize what, you know, if there's something special about those? So we, we did not subgroup the responding mice, although, you know, at the end of an experiment, we, we don't get 100% protection, as you could see. Right. The, at the end of an experiment, well, we typically have a lot of uh, protected mice, but very few control mice left. So we have a lot of uh, data on what's, what is the, the T cells look like at this later time point, but it's also not, we don't have controls to compare to. Um, but, you know, they, they are, we, we do see quite a few changes when you look at the T cell profile from say six to eight weeks after the start of the treatment and much later time point in, uh, in the very end of the, the experiment, uh, particularly with Saga, for example, where we see the C-Saga inducing the most expansion of the antigen-specific T cells. And at the end of the experiment, that's where we see the fewest cells. So the uh, contraction of the T cell response, and that leads to back to level that's seen without immunization. So a very, that's either deletion or redistribution of the cells, but we don't think it's redistribution because we don't see an increase in ILEX. Mm. And so the cells get deleted. And, and what's very nice is that the, re the remaining cells, the few cells that remain are primarily FOXP3 positive cells. Hmm. That's very interesting. I, I'll be very interested to see how your work continues to develop. This is very, um, you know, it has a lot of promise to, to actually, you know, uh, create clinical applications as far as I can see. Um, and I thank you again for taking the time and going over with the questions. Really appreciate uh, you taking the time out of your busy day. And, and I think everyone in the audience has really enjoyed the talk. A lot of clapping. Um, so have a great rest of your day and uh, we'll, we'll keep in touch. Thanks again. Thank you, Monica. Bye-bye.